I'm going to open back up to Matthew chapter 27. We'd gotten kind of halfway through it, coming up to the point of the crucifixion. We stopped right about where <clears throat> Jesus had been convicted by Pilate and was taken to be scourged or flogged or beaten. This is picking up in about verse 26 of chapter 27. It says, Then released he Barabbas to them, and when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the common hall and gathered to him the whole band of soldiers. And they stripped him and put on him a scarlet robe. And when they had plaited a crown of thorns, they put it upon his head and with a reed, they or, and put a reed in his right hand. And they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and smote him on the head. And after that they had mocked him, they took the robe off from him and put, him out, and put his own raiment on him and led him away to be crucified. And as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, him they compelled to bear his cross. And when they were come unto a place called Golgotha, that is to say a place of a skull, they gave him vinegar to drink mingled with gall. And when he had tasted thereof, he would not drink. And they crucified him and parted his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet. They parted my garments among them, and upon my vesture did they cast lots. And sitting down, they watched him there, and set up over his head his accusation written, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then were there two thieves crucified with him, one on the right hand and one on the left. And they that passed by reviled him, wagging their heads and saying, Thou that destroys the temple and builds it in three days, save yourself. If you be the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise, also the chief priests mocking him with the scribes and elders said, He saved others himself he cannot save. If he be the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now. If he will have him, for he said, I am the son of God. The thieves also, which were crucified with him, cast the same in their teeth. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Some of them that stood there when, he heard, when they heard that said, This man calls for Elijah. And straightway one of them ran and took a sponge and filled it with vinegar and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. The rest said, Let be, let us see whether Elias or Elijah will come to save him. Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. Now, again, we talked a little bit last time in closing about what the scene is here. Obviously, it's a scene that we've all read and studied and know about, and we talk about it in, uh, in April around the time that we celebrate um, the resurrection. And, you know, we, we discuss this, and it's very familiar to us. But, you know, we did want to kind of impress as we were looking into this the uniqueness of it, and we did want to, you know, get a little bit of a picture that kind of hopefully puts us in the scene with Christ, okay? Um, we didn't want this to be abstract, and we didn't want it to be just a historical event. Um, I have kind of shied away in diving off, I guess, on the normal tracks that I usually would go off on on, on this topic, um, just because I, I want us to get, I guess, a little more intimate with the scene, Okay? Um, kind of like we did when we looked at the Passover meal, we looked at communion, you know, we didn't want to just have a discourse about how proper communion is conducted. We want to get the picture of Jesus and his humanity as he is giving up his life for us. When we were looking at the garden of Gethsemane, again, we wanted to get Jesus in his humanity, in his anguish, in his trials, in his desperation prayers, in everything that he was fighting with, with that. Here, we want to get into his humanity as well. 
When you look at this that he has taken in scourge, this is the second time he's beaten. And we kind of talked about it last time. The first time was in the uh, presence of the Jewish Sanhedrin that had happened just, you know, a few hours before this. Um, probably beaten in the traditional manner of, of Jewish kind of floggings where they were beaten 39 stripes. They stopped at 39 to make sure they didn't accidentally miscount and get to 41. You know, because again, when you're beating up an innocent man, let's make sure we're keeping the law really to a jot and to a tittle. Okay. And that's, again, these, these little scenes like that are little jabs you can get in there about the hypocrisy of the legalism of these Jewish leaders at this time. It's like you're condemning an innocent man to death, but let's make sure when we're beating him, we don't accidentally exceed the permit of 40. We're going to keep it right. We're only going to beat him 39 times to make sure we don't break the law and accidentally hitting him 41 times. Because then, you know, whoa, we would really be in trouble there because we're breaking the law. Disregarding the fact that, again, we are condemning an innocent man to death, a man that you tried so hard to pin something on him and you couldn't get anything to stick because he was just so doggone good. It just is a sad, again, a sad testimony to the hard-hearted, wicked nature of these men as they're dealing with him. And, I, you know, you, you look at it, and, I mean, there's ways that we always will look at situations and want to throw stones or whatever. But, I mean, you look at this, and you can take it as a cautionary tale for us. Be, be cognizant of yourself in this. Number one, because there's a high possibility that we might have been on the other side. I don't always like some people always throw and say, oh, yes, we would all be on that other side. Well, I mean, Jesus had like 500 followers that weren't. I'm not going to say that. I'm not going to claim that somehow we would all be on the on the side of the Jews and we would be sitting here throwing stones on the side of them. We, we might not. We very easily could be just like the other disciples, followers of Christ, little cowardly. Probably, yes, I would say we would have ran away too and gone and locked ourselves in, in room. You know, if Peter and James and all the other ones did it, more than likely we would have too. But what's more shocking is just the hard-hearted, wicked nature of the Romans, which you can almost say, yeah, but... You know, they're pagan. This is what they do. Can't really hold it against them. They're just beating up another Jew that they don't like and thinks inferior. And they're going to, they don't care. The fact that the Jews in their knowledge, in their blessings, in their covenantal relationship with God are so wickedly hard-hearted, opposed to God that they will go so far as to murder the Son of God. That is the story behind all this. And that's what I have cautioned us on. Because you would look at this and you go, we would never be in that situation. And again, I would hope you wouldn't. But I can see how it happens really easily. And all you have to do is look at some mainstream perceptions about what Christianity is. And you can see how large groups of people who would profess to be followers of Christ are doing things that Christ would be appalled at. So that's why I say it's really important for us to check ourselves on this because not that I'm saying we're looking murdering the Messiah again, but we do need to be careful that we are not murdering everything that he taught by our actions. That's why I've gone on and on and on and on and on. I know y'all are all excited about it to hear it again. I've gone on and on about we have to be very cognizant of doing what the Bible tells us to do and not making excuses for it. Not coming up with ways around it. Not saying, yeah, but that just kind of grates on what I think we should do. Okay, I'm glad it grates on you. I'm glad it feels a little bit oppositional to your position. That's actually a good thing. Because if what Christ taught just felt so easy and went along with everything that the culture and world and people and individuals thought was right, then man, we would be in a lot of trouble. So I'm glad it grates on us. I'm glad it's not what we would all have it be. 
I'm glad it's not moved from culture to culture and time to time and generation to generation. And this generation has a different feel on it. So we're going to kind of move it this way. And this generation has another feel. On it. We're going to move it. I'm, I'm glad that that's not how it is. I'm glad that for time immemorial, you can go back to this and go, it's funny how this applies in every generation in exactly how Jesus taught it. Different scenarios, different people, different lifestyles, different everything. You can still come back to this and go, yeah, but this still stands firm and it still applies today. So I'm glad it grates on us. That's a good thing. Let it grate on us. It's kind of like when you are, you know, you're grating something, okay, while you're cooking, right? I'm pretty sure for that piece of cheese or that, you know, garlic or whatever it is, it doesn't feel very good, all right, if they had feelings and, you know, now we're getting into like veggie tales and all this stuff. But, you know, if you were, I'm, I'm sure that it, it, it has some kind of abrasiveness to that poor little thing and it, it wouldn't feel good if it had feelings, but... The end result is what the end result is. It's a change. It's supposed to make a change in our lives. Now, everybody's got the, um, the image in their head of grating that cucumber, aren't you? I don't blame you. Look, though, in this scene, what the Jews continue to rail against him. Okay? Remember, we talked about how they couldn't pin anything negative on him. They couldn't get any witnesses to even lie and say, I saw Jesus murder a dude, or I saw him selling drugs to kids at school, or I saw... They couldn't get any kind of anything to stick on him because he was just so doggone good that you couldn't get anything to stick on him. But what they got him on were the same two accusations that they're making here, the same two that they made in the Sanhedrin, which was, he said he could destroy the temple and build it again, and he said, I am the Son of God. Those same two accusations are brought up here again. As people walk by, they reviled him. He says, hey, you said you could destroy the temple in three days. Raise it again. Come on, big boy. If you can do that, save yourself. Took our fathers 40 years to build this thing. You said you could do it in three. If you're so powerful that you can do that, go ahead. Hop on off that cross. And the chief priest mocked him and said he can save others, but himself he cannot. If he be the king of Israel, let him come down now from the cross and we will believe him. He trusted in God. Let God deliver him now if he will have him. Because he said, I am the son of God. Well, doesn't the son of God get protection from the father? Doesn't the son of God have the legions of angels at his disposal? Didn't even the devil talk about how the Son of God was going to be protected so that he wouldn't even dash his toe on a rock? If you really are the Son of God, let God save you. Don't you think that's just a little bit brazen on the part of the Pharisees and the chief priests? When you start mocking God, while saying you're a representative of God, you're getting into some pretty dicey territory with that, okay? When you start going down the line where you are so hard set in your own selfishness, your own power, your own glory, and you're holding on to that tooth and nail and everything, you end up in this situation, well, if, I mean, look, if, if, if you were the son of God, wouldn't God come and save you? It's like you're ignoring all the things that had been prophesied about him. I mean, we go back, especially around, you know, Easter weekend and everything, and we go back and we read Isaiah 53 and we read all these things. And I mean, it's like it's written right there. The dude is going to suffer. He's going to die. He's going to be placed in a tomb. He's going to give up his life for the salvation of his people. I mean, all that's written in there. Yet you're mocking going, yeah, well, if you were the son of God, you'd be able to. Notice how their mocking statements to Jesus echo very closely to Satan's temptations in the wilderness. Notice how their mocking accusations resemble very closely 
to the temptations of Satan in the wilderness. Are you hungry? Well, I mean, if you are the son of God or if you want my power, I can make this stone into bread. If you're going to, hey, go ahead and hop up on that pinnacle and throw yourself off because didn't the word of God say that the Lord would send down legions of angels to protect you? If you are the son of God, is God not going to intervene on you, Jesus? You said you were the son of God. Shouldn't your father be taking care of you? It's very scary how close those are. But notice they even mocked him for saving others. That that is probably out of all this the most tragic. You're mocking him for saving others. That's one of the accusations you have against him. How goofy is that? Who would you you would think it's like in your own mind you'd go, who would ever do that? Who would ever pick on someone for doing good? Who would ever attack someone for doing good things? Who would ever revile someone who's trying to do what the word of God says? Who would ever do that? It's a very interesting position to be in. You're mocking Jesus because he saved others. But this is not new with them. I mean, this is Sabbath day healings all just in in rewind. Oh, you you can't do that, Jesus. Don't you know what the law says? The law says you're not supposed to do work. And we have devised that what that means is that even healing on the Sabbath day would be work. And Jesus is going, guys, I wrote the law. I am the one that said that. Don't you think I know what's permissible for me to do? Is it against the law to do good on the Sabbath day? Wouldn't you even go pull your ox out of a ditch on the Sabbath day? If you will pull a dumb animal out of a ditch on the Sabbath day, which most certainly is work, then to heal someone on the Sabbath day is not work and it is acceptable to do. But here they're going to say, oh, well, he can save others, but he cannot save himself. And I mean, that's the, the reality of it is, is even when they're when they're trying to accuse him of things we, we talked about, it, they cannot deny the good works he's di- done. The healings could not be disregarded, withered hands, withered legs, lepers, all these things, blindness, all that couldn't be disregarded. I mean, even the blind man was like, hey, guys, I don't know who Jesus is, but I'm just saying who's ever healed blindness Hadn't happened, has it? So he must be from God. So even the blind man can come up and go, dude, I don't, I'm not a theologian, but I can even say this guy's got something that y'all don't have. The resurrection of Lazarus could not be denied. In fact, because it couldn't be denied, the Pharisees were even plotting how they were going to kill him. We're going to get this guy out of here. He really cramps our style being alive, you know, when everybody knew he was dead and now he's alive again. And Jesus was kind of the cause of that. That really is is bad uh, publicity for our propaganda about how Jesus is not the son of God. You know, when he goes around just like making people undead again, you know, uh, going to the, the widow's, you know, child that was on the buyer as they're walking by. And Jesus is just like, no, I don't think so today. Boom, you're alive again, too. You know, all these people just popping back from the dead really really cramped the Pharisee style going around going, oh, no, he's just, you know what? He's just, he's doing all this by the power of Satan. It's like, yeah, that's not really Satan's MO. You know, Satan doesn't go around making people alive again and giving people hope and peace and happiness and joy. He kind of kills people, um, not doesn't make them alive again. So all these things were, were grand testimonies to Jesus' power, his capability, his character, his love, his compassion, his mercy. And it really annoyed the Pharisees. And now that they've got him nailed to the cross, they're like, yeah, got you right where we wanted you. You could save others, but you can't save yourself. Again, it, it, it just speaks volumes about their hard-heartedness in this situation. Even the Roman centurion that's standing there by the cross, who has no affiliation to this moment, no ties to Jesus, no prior. This is, this is not a guy who's been like listening into his sermons at synagogue and going, 
you know what? God's got some good stuff to say. Random Roman centurion, even he, when all this is over, is going, he must be the son of God. The people who should know best of all are mocking, reviling, and telling him, we don't want anything to do with you. In fact, we want you dead. You couldn't be the son of God. You're blaspheming by saying you are. And this poor little Roman centurion today going, I don't know about you guys, but he must have been the son of God. I mean, there's something going on here. That is a remarkably telling thing about the power of Jesus Christ in, in, in his entire life. Same thing that you would find when Jesus is talking to a Roman centurion way back when. When he says, I have not seen this kind of faith in all of Israel. It's funny how the people who are on the outside seem to be showing more faith and belief than those who it should be expected of. Which is, again, a testimony for us. We have to be careful that we are not acting like the Pharisees, but rather emulating these Roman pagans. How, how many of you would ever be told that you need to emulate the pagans? Probably not something that comes up regularly, right? Probably not something that we would say you would need to do. But when you look at these situations, these guys who were considered ignorant and were considered uneducated on the things of God, who were not part of the covenant, who were on the outside looking in, who had never been a part of it, Jesus actually says it on multiple occasions. I'm actually about to bring all these guys in. They're going to come down and sit at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And all of you guys are going to be on the outside wailing and gnashing your teeth. Because these people are showing the faith lineage of Abraham. Whereas you by your natural lineage are on the outside looking in. So this is a important kind of capstone on all this to see that it just, it doesn't change. It's fascinating that their hard-heartedness is so deep that even when he's on the cross at the weakest point of his existence, you've, you know, quote-unquote, you've won. You've got him where you want him. You're still acting like this. You don't even have the common decency of mercy, compassion, grace when a guy is nailed to a cross dying. That is a bad place to be in. And then he cries after they give him the, the uh, vinegar. And that's, you know, the, the English that's used here referring to the vinegar. It's not necessarily like we think of the white vinegar that we get underneath our cabinets. Um, it could have been apple cider vinegar because that might have been the thing that would have kept him from dying. I'm not sure. Okay. But, you know, I think that is in one of the taglines on apple cider vinegar that it can, cure, it can cure crucifixions. I'm not saying it. I'm not condoning it. And the FDA makes no kind of statements about that. But um, this vinegar that is described was actually a different kind of mixed wine uh, that soldiers and common people would drink. Um, especially day laborers and things like that. They also would mix it. It says it's mixed here with gall, which if you look up the word directly, it says poison, but it's actually almost like a medicinal thing. It was supposed to be a kind of pain reliever, okay? And so this vinegar mixed with gall was what they would give these people on the cross to drink as kind of a show of a little bit of a mercy is you could drink this down and it would numb your pain and then you wouldn't hurt as much as you're, you know, splayed out on the cross, Okay. Jesus refused to drink it. None of his suffering was dulled in this manner. He didn't want it dulled. That again shows the level that he's going to with this. It's not masochistic. It's not sadist. It's not that he just liked pain. But he was drinking the cup that was prepared for him to drink. We talked about how we, he was silent on the cross and that that was a testimony to his embodying the role of the sacrificial lamb. And that the lamb goes quiet before its shearers. Jesus was going quiet before his accusers. Here again, he is literally drinking in even the dregs or what's left over at the bottom. He's drinking every bit of this cup of wrath that the father had in store for us. All the pain, all the suffering, all the distance, all the why have you forsaken me, all of that poured out in this cup and Jesus drank it to the bottom. 
because any of it left would be on you and me. And we couldn't even take the dregs of it. We'd be gone before one drop came out. So Jesus took it all for us. That's what you're seeing in this moment. When he cries out, Eli, Eli, Lama Sabachthani, that is taken directly from the psalm that we, were, we referenced last time when we were talking about how Jesus was in the Garden of the Gethsemane and he was crying out and he was praying three times. And we kind of had one of those moments where we could assume it was a silent prayer answer kind of thing. He didn't, in other scenes, you have these audible voices from heaven. In this scene, you have Jesus crying out on three separate occasions, almost not receiving an answer like he has before. And that's evidenced by this psalm that he is quoted in where he says, I have cried to you day and night. And you have not answered my prayers. And here he uses that same psalm in Psalm 22, very first verse, to kind of embody his position at this point. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And that Eli, Eli, El is the Hebrew word for God. Okay. Um, so you have Eli, Eli, Lama Sabachthani, why have you forsaken me? So he was in, he was embodying that psalm. And again, just like when he, when they cast lots and, and, and divided his garments, you know, it says, so that it would be fulfilled what was said. Again, we've talked about this over and over again. They weren't sitting around going, hey guys, we've got Isaiah to, to fulfill here. So, hey, who wants to beat of his, you know, that, that's not what happened. But what Matthew, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is reorienting all future readers is, this was already prophesied. God had already said this was happening. If you want confirmation of both events, the prophecy and of the actual event, you've got it referenced in both places. Boom. There you go. Prophecy fulfilled. Here with Jesus in this moment, he's, he is fulfilling that psalm. Not because he was like, oh, wait, it's time for my crucifixion. Okay, there's something I got to say. What was it? Oh, yeah, that's right. It was my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? That's not what's going on here. He is living out that soul anguish in those words. The same words that David was living out when he wrote them. And he just didn't know at that time he was prophesying about the coming Messiah. Written through all of those Psalms, through all those prophecies in Isaiah and Ezekiel are the torments, the anguish, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That's why we go back and we should read them. That's why they're important. We don't just start over at AD 33 and go, yep, Genesis is out the window. Ezekiel takes a back seat. We're a New Testament church and we only focus on the New Testament because you can't have the New Testament without the Old Testament. Okay, it doesn't work that way. And one of the things that we said over and over again as we were studying through the, the uh, Pentateuch was, I, I firmly believe it's just one testament, okay? We've called it Old and New Testament, but it's really just one testament because it's only testifying about one event. And it's actually this event right here. Genesis to Revelation is all about this moment. Everything prophesied about every covenant, about every ill thing going on in the world, and every redemptive story from Genesis to Revelation is about this moment right here. What is accomplished here? What is taken care of here? This is the moment. And that's what we talked about. We have been going for three years, two and three quarters and five eighths. We've been going for all this time talking about the testimony of Jesus Christ. And we've all been going for this moment. This is the moment. So this one testament that we read about, it's all going back to this. So when you go back and you're reading your Psalms a day or you're going through your Proverbs in 30 days or whatever you're doing, this is the moment you need to hinge that all on. When you see the songs of praise and the songs of adoration and the songs of anguish, this is what you're hinging that on. The joy, the peace, the happiness, the completion in God is because of this. The sorrow and anguish and despair in this world is fixed because of this. 
So like everything's on this. So that's why it's so important. So the importance of the cross, as we kind of laid out, obviously you cannot, I don't think, adequately box in the importance of the cross. But we know that the cross was a legal, sacrificial, atoning work. Okay, we've got that. I think everybody's in agreement with that. That's like Catechism 101. You learn atonement, sacrifice, justification happened on the cross. You can read in 1 John where it said, My little children, these things I write to you that you sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. The propitiation, the sacrifice, the substitutionary death, the payment for the sin debt, it's here. Okay, so we understand the atoning work of the cross, but it also was much, much more than that. Okay, if we only zero in on that one tiny aspect of the cross, then there is a huge world of Christian following and belief that we are neglecting essential things for our existence that we're neglecting the first one would be peace you know jesus christ's death on the cross brought peace for all of us not just peace with us and god which we have that obviously that again goes back to the atonement thing that goes back to the sacrificial work the propitiation jesus accomplished Peace between us and God, man and God, because of his work there. But there was also peace made in other areas of our lives. When you look in Galatians chapter 6, Paul writing to the church at Galatia, starting in verse 14, would say this. But God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, notice When you read through the apostles' letters and things, notice how many times they go back to the cross as being the thing that defines their preaching and their existence, okay? That I should save or in the cross of, of our Lord Jesus Christ, but whom the world is crucified, by whom the world is crucified to me and I to the world. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creature, And as many as walk according to this rule, peace be on them and mercy and upon the Israel of God. From henceforth, let no man trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus Christ. Brethren, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. The thing that we grab from the cross... And you can find this when you look over, and and we will look at this in in the next section. But when you're talking about peace, you know, what Christ accomplished on the cross, yes, atonement, yes, sacrifice, yes, for, for propitiation. But he also established for us a peace between ourselves, a peace with our existence. You know, Paul here kind of makes things, he says, it's not about the stuff. It's not about circumcision or uncircumcision. In this case, he's addressing the, the racial barriers that are going on here. He says, hey, none, of that, none of that matters anymore. The things that you thought were so important, this comes up over and over again in our culture. Whether it's Republican or Democrat, whether it's black or white, whether it is affluent or poor, whatever it may be, all the things that over the years and in our culture, things have kind of cropped up to be the thing that is the defining thing for everybody of the culture of that day. And Jesus here was talking about, Paul here was talking about circumcision and uncircumcision, Jews and Gentiles. He says, it doesn't doesn't matter. Like that's all done. The cross just like erased all that. It says it, it's, it's, it's done. You have peace. You can have peace with the fact that you're not whatever this thing is, okay? You can have peace with the fact that the little divisions and barriers and things that you used to allow to trouble you so much, don't, they don't matter anymore. They don't avail to anything. The only thing that matters is the new creature and what he's referring to there is us who have been born again and made new into a new creature he says that's all that matters now 
the new creation, the new creature who is imbued and filled up with peace, joy, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, meekness, all these things. He says, that's all that matters now. You know, not to quote the apostle Michael Jackson, but, you know, it doesn't matter if you're black or white, okay? He says, what matters is the new creation, the marvelous work of Jesus Christ. I'm glad we got the response. I got to make sure you're listening, okay? Somebody's going to jot that down and then put for their Sunday, you know, quote of the day. Apostle Michael Jackson said. The other thing that it was accomplished with this is unity. And this kind of plays off the peace thing. Obviously, to have unity, you have to have peace with one another, right? Well, the beautiful thing is, is Jesus took care of that too, didn't he? Isn't that nice? Again, I like it when people do stuff for me. Now, I'm also one who likes to just do everything on my own and I don't ask for help. And that's just, you know, we're not going to call anybody out on that. But that's just, you know, that's just how it is. Um, But I love it when people do stuff for me. When people solve big issues for me, don't you like it when you like walk into work and that big thing you were dreading is just already taken care of? Isn't that fantastic? Love that. Okay. Here's a great thing. Jesus has abolished forever all divisions that you could ever possibly have. Isn't that great? Isn't that nice? Isn't it sweet that Jesus did that? So like we don't have to struggle with it. We don't have to like try to figure out all this racial harmony stuff. We can just do what Jesus said and it would be fixed. You don't have to like try to fix all this divisions within whatever little group you're in, whatever church group you're in, whatever, whatever. If you just did what Jesus said, it would be fixed. Because he said, guess what? All those little things that you keep holding up saying, this is what prevents me from being able to interact with you because there's this wall of division, this partition between me and you that we just can't cross because it just is what it is. That's how society is. That's how whatever is the church is, the race is, whatever. This division is here. And Paul writing to the church at Ephesus said, and what happened with the cross is that he is our peace who hath made both the divided sectors one and hath broken down the wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of two people one new man, so making peace, and that he might reconcile both to God in one body by the cross having slain the enmity thereby and came and preached peace to you which were afar off and to them that are nigh in that fantastic the cross accomplished peace and that peace accomplished unity between two racial groups that have been divided For over a thousand years. In one failed swoop. Jesus just blew that all to smithereens. He said, I'm glad that you're still circumcised and uncircumcised. I'm glad you still have your unique little racial identities and these things that make you who you are. But guess what? You are now one. You can fight it all you want to. The reality is still the reality. You can try to put up a little wall of partition, but I always imagine like now you're like trying to put up one of those little really flimsy trifold wall things that never stand up very good. Okay. You can try to build that up all you want to. It's not like a strong sneeze won't blow that over. You can put it up all you want to. It won't stick. The divisions that had been there racial, religious, whatever it may be, Jesus just went and tore that right apart. And then he said, and you two are going to be one now. You're going to be one happy family. I was thinking about it. What is that? Like the Brady Bunch? You know, you got like so many kids on one side come together. Boom. Now you got the Brady Bunch, like 12 kids in a house. Everybody was happy except the whole football incident. Everybody was good. No problems. Okay. One big happy family. And they call it the Brady Bunch. But here... Jesus says, this big wall that had been put up between you two. And when you talk about the wall of partition between Jew and Gentile, you are now talking about basically everybody that was 
claimed in the covenant of God with Abraham, okay? And then everybody else, which means basically you have everybody in the entire world. This wall of partition is broken down. There is no other group you can come up to in the world anywhere you look and go, I love you for Christ's sakes, but there's just got to be separation between us because you are who you are and we are who we are. There is no group of believers. There's no color of believers. There's no identity of believers in some other country that, you know, we would be enemies against maybe in a natural world. There's no other people that you can scour the world and find that are still on the other side of the wall. We're all one. So when we go back and we talk about things like when we were mentioning last time about the things going on in Iran, you bring up Iran in certain groups, you will have certain positions and ideas about it. You'll have some group talking about how we should go over there and just bomb the entire country. Say that's fine, but there's people that are not on another side of the wall. They're one with us. Say, oh, yeah, but look at that country. Look at that regime. Look at what they're doing. Look at everything. Yeah, and look at the fact that Christ said there's, there's no wall there. There's people there. My people who I made one with you. That's your foot that's sitting over there in that country. Have you gone and taken care of it lately? That's your hand that you're leaving out there. My body is one. My body's not going to be separated. My body's not going to be cut off. And you can't all be a hand and you can't all be a foot. And nor can you deal without it. It's my body. It's the church universal. So it's a beautiful thing that was accomplished on the cross. Besides and above and beyond. Just the legal ramifications. So. It's really, really, really important for us to recognize that when you go through the early church writings, when you go through the Gospels, and when you go through the book of Acts, and you go through these epistles, you will see how the focal point of their lives shifted. Notice that like with the disciples of John, it was like the preaching of the things of John and the baptism of John. That was like the thing. That was their thing. Okay. That's what they focused on. Apollos is going around in Acts and he's still doing the thing that John told him to do. And so he's stuck there. That's what he's doing. With the disciples after the cross, after the resurrection, after Pentecost, everything starts hinging off that cross. Like it was something really important to them. In fact, when you look in Again, at the book of Galatians, when Paul's writing, he says, See how large a letter I have written to you with my own hand. As many as desire to make a fair show in the flesh, they constrain you to be circumcised. Only lest they should suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. For neither they themselves who are circumcised keep the law, but desire to have you circumcised that may glory in your flesh. You say, well, what does that mean? These people at this point that Paul is calling out were pushing circumcision for the purpose of avoiding being persecuted for the cross. He says, they are constraining you to be circumcised only lest they should suffer persecution for the sake of the cross. What they are doing is, is they're trying to avoid the cross issue so they can avoid persecution. Now, the contrary is true of that as well. The New Testament church people went out and preached the cross. And that's what they were persecuted for. They didn't give it up. These people that are trying to throw in circumcision to make everything kind of hunky-dory with the whole Jewish Christian thing, they're trying to avoid that. And Paul's going, no, guys, it is the focal issue. You can't avoid it. It's the reason why you're alive. So that's how it should be for us. The cross cannot be a subject that we shy away from because the cross is the subject that makes us who we are. What was accomplished on the cross is that new creature thing. 
He says that's why he says after the cross, it doesn't matter about circumcision or uncircumcision because it only matters about the new creature, which was accomplished with the cross. So the cross is what makes us who we are. So we can't shy away from it. We find our atonement in the cross and we thank God for our salvation. We find our peace in the cross. And we thank God for our deliverance. And we find our unity in the cross. And we thank God for reconciliation between us and God. And we should be thankful for the reconciliation that is made between us and each other. All too often as we fast forward and rewind through history, we find how that principle right there is so blatantly ignored. No matter what it is. And, we're, and we're, the reason that I say it is because we're, we're kind of getting back into that. We're getting back into that with this thing of where we're just trying to divide people out as much as possible. Maybe it's not just a strictly racial thing. Maybe it's not just with Americans and with Hispanics or with Americans and African-Americans or with, I mean, you know, all through history, there's always been these groups that it's just constantly been one thing after the other. Okay. You still have Sunnis and Shias in, 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 in Muslim countries that they're going at each other and have been for hundreds of years. Okay. So there's always this kind of racial thing that gets people. That in and of itself is ignoring this. That's why I always kind of go back and lament. And that's one of the main things that we've talked about. You know, it is lamentable. Is that a word? It is lamentable to look back and see Christians justifying things like slavery and the treatment of African-Americans. That is grossly lamentable. It's just as lamentable for Christians to make similar statements and characterizations of people who are of Hispanic descent. But even beyond that, unity between fellow believers in Jesus Christ is probably the most lamentable thing of all. The way that you can segment yourself out based on traditions or whatever it may be to divide Christ, as Paul would say in 1 Corinthians, to satisfy your own traditional views on things especially if those are own traditional things that aren't found in the bible okay that's just number one but to divide yourself out so far in that way with people who still believe in jesus christ like you do you know we talk about being salt and light of the earth and we recognize the fact that we're the only ones who can be salt and light in the earth and to be like throwing out the morton salt because you're a different kind of brand is pretty stupid Y'all are both here for the same purpose. We have the same connection. We love the same Savior. To divide ourselves is kind of like dividing your army before a big battle. Like, well, we don't like that army that's from West Tennessee. They're a little weird. I give you that. You know, people from West Tennessee are kind of weird, I bet. But anyway, it's, it's one of those things that to do that is just... It's detrimental to the cause that we are called to. And what Jesus would say is there's, there's none of that. Look, I died on the cross for everyone's sins. Whether you're a Tennessee fan or an Alabama fan, I died for everybody's. Now, we all know that probably the Tennessee fans' sins were bigger than everybody else's. But it's still, you, he died for it. No matter what the sin committed is, it's done. He died for it. No matter what the racial thing is that we would concoct and say is a barrier, Jesus says, no, I died for that too. I died for your racism. Repent and change. It's not acceptable for you to continue to walk in that. Just like it wouldn't be acceptable for you to continue to walk in adultery or gluttony or murder. Guess what? Racism's a sin too. You can't walk in it either. Your attitude towards fellow believers, your spitefulness, bitterness, haughtiness, pridefulness, legalistic, whatever it is, that's not okay either. And you can't continue to walk in it and say, I follow Jesus Christ and do what he tells me to do. No, you're not because you're not repenting of that. 
It's not an acceptable barrier. It's not something Jesus looks at and says, boy, I'm glad you put that back up. I know that I died to remove all these barriers, but I'm glad you propped that one back up. That's a good one to keep. I didn't really take that in consideration when I died for it. Now I see the, the merits in what you're doing. It's okay to resurrect that. No, Jesus says, dude, I nailed that bad boy to the cross. And when I killed it, it's killed dead. Don't try to put it back up. This isn't weekend at Bernie's. You leave it dead. Okay. So the, the big picture that we grab from this is that the cross is what makes us who we are. Okay. And that means it has changed us. We are a new creation, which means we need to quit trying to imitate our old creation and all of its baggage. We get to gracefully and mercifully go, all that was nailed to the cross, and I can just leave it there. I can hang it on that coat rack, and I never have to pick it up again. I can just leave it alone. It didn't help me when I did wear it. It didn't help me when I was doing that. It was detrimental to my health and life and spiritual, and spiritual foundation. It was horrible. And Christ graciously died to kill that portion And when Christ kills it, it's killed. So don't pick it up anymore. Walk in this new creation life that Jesus says, here's what it looks like. It's peace. It's mercy. It's long-suffering. It's gentleness. It's goodness. And it's about loving me and loving your neighbor and just doing what I tell you to do. You don't have to like swish a magic eight ball or anything you can just do what i have clearly told you to do and you will be living the life that i have created you to live that is so simple that takes all the ambiguity out for us so hopefully we will find that peace i encourage you to it's tiring living that other life It is tiring to be trying to find peace in every other thing in this world when it's just already readily given to you in Jesus Christ. It is tiresome to constantly have to be throwing up barriers between you and your fellow believers, between you and even other people in this world. When Christ said, just love them, you know, you don't have to put up barriers. You can just love them and I'll deal with the rest of it. Isn't that a beautiful relief? You don't have to worry about like how, how strong your, your barriers are built up. You can just live the life that Christ has told you to live, and he'll take care of the rest. That's awesome. It's peaceful. It's freeing. And it's something that we are commanded to do. So let us find our identity in the cross and in the cross alone. May God bless us to do that.